This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello and welcome back to the Dear Prudence Show once again. And as always, I am your host, Daniel Mallory Ortberg. With me in the studio this week is Willow McClay, a writer and film critic who runs the website Curtsies and Hand Grenades. She's also the co-author of the upcoming book, Corpses, Fools, and Monsters, an Examination of Transgender Cinema. Willow, welcome. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm so excited to have you here. Um, We were just having a wonderful conversation a minute ago about The Favorite, a movie which I just saw yesterday and and you got to see semi-recently. And I... I just still keep I I keep thinking this is not spoilers, by the way, but there's a wonderful scene where somebody is angrily writing a letter and crumpling up letters and throwing them behind them, which is just a scene that (laughs) I haven't seen in a movie in a while. Like, I feel like at some point in the 90s, everyone's like, no, that is too cliche. We're done. And I'm so glad someone's bringing it back. Yeah. And it's nice to see it in an age when like people actually wrote letters and that was the main form of communication, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Like it's just it's it's this it's this lovely movie from this time period um, that we haven't necessarily seen um, like this kind of movie from that time period before. It's like usually like the movies that are period pieces, they're kind of prim and proper. And but this one's kind of absurd. Which, you know, the times back then, you know, they were absurd to some degree. So it's good to see someone finally latching on to that in a new way. I I agree with you so much. I actually wrote a couple of years ago a, a piece about like how I would survive in the court of Queen Anne as a lesbian favorite. This was obviously before I transitioned. <laughs> like that's how yeah. strongly I felt about how Sarah mishandled things. So when I heard they were making a movie about it, I was like, at last I've been vindicated. So this movie is like basically made for you then. It was so made for me, especially because one thing I feel really strongly about um, is that if you are at the court of like a near absolute monarch or at least a monarch whose like whims kind of have to be pandered to lest you be, you know, exiled from court. Yeah. Like now is so not the time to like try to develop a relationship of equals. Now is the time to figure out exactly how much does this person want to feel like they're being challenged. Give them that and no more. Um, and so I always get really mad at old royal favorites who, uh, you know, get too comfortable because I'm just like, you have one job, <laughs> one job. And that is to just accept that this person is the Lord's representative on Earth and give them everything they want. Absolutely. And I would do that so well. <laughs> All right. I think we should move into answering people's questions instead of spending time thinking about how good I would be at making Stuart monarchs very, very happy, even though the answer is totally happy. Um, And I will read our first letter. Uh, The subject is low stakes family getting along, which is just such a lovely subject and not one that I get as often as I might like. Yeah. Dear Prudence, when I was a teen in trouble, a local family took me in. We're not biologically related. I was barely nodding acquaintances with them at the start. But now we've lived together for several years and I'm extremely grateful. They're happy to forego rent if it's a tight month for me. I'm happy to pay extra to help out with bills when I can. We share family meals. It's all a blessing. Now that I'm settled in and no longer creeping around like a frightened deer, I think I'm experiencing normal family emotions. 
Well, with the economy being what it is, I probably won't be able to move out for a while, which leads me to ask, how do you get along with people you live with? I've never had a nice family living situation before, so I don't know how to deal with being mildly irritated by someone. All of my past homes have been survival until I can escape. Now I live with lovely, kind people who see me as one of their own, but sometimes get a little nosy or a little messy or repeat a story for the nth time. I really don't know how to handle these situations. What are some tips for being an adult living with family who's not overstepping their bounds, but you still sometimes want space from? All these dad jokes are nicely driving me up the wall. <laughs> I, I, I really love this one. Um, and I think it can be really hard, like, when you sort of realize, I know how to protect myself when my safety is threatened, um, and I know how to escape, and that those are skills that are really have been really, really useful to me, but now I kind of am safe, and I don't really need to escape, and I don't have any of the skills that would help me... Uh, respond appropriately to something that responds like a low level uh, something from me like a no or a taking a walk or uh, challenging something and and kind of trying to figure out like how do I develop new coping strategies um, when I'm no longer in crisis mode is is a really difficult thing to sort of figure out yeah for sure um, my own childhood was very rocky f- for reasons completely out of my control and like it's it's interesting because I did I, I on the surface we were kind of like this I have a very normal everyday family or whatever but um un, like behind closed doors like definitely wasn't the case and I kind of don't have the whole like comfortable family living situation thing and I didn't really have that until I until I moved in with the guy that I'm now engaged to. And his uh, in-laws have been treating me very well. And I've read into like similar problems as the reader in like having these very minor altercations um, that like like aren't like heavy, serious, severe problems or anything like but like, you know, it's, it's difficult to navigate problems when there aren't when they aren't like the end of the world. Yeah, like, that's a difficult thing to do. Right. And by the way, congratulations on finding some wonderful in-laws. I'm so glad. Thank you. Uh, what did you find helpful in that situation? Um, just kind of getting used to like their rhythms and everything and understanding like, okay, this person is, this person reacts this way to this thing and they joke about this or that. And just understanding what for them is like playful and what isn't necessarily and just kind of understanding their own space, just watching them in particular and trying to figure out my role in everything. Like, I think that was typically how I figured out how to navigate, like, in-laws that were actually kind of, like, good to me instead of parents that were, like, overbearing and controlling and completely dominant of my free time and my abilities to just engage in anything that I wanted to do. But, like, they're v- my in-laws are very free, in my time and everything and like giving me the space that I need. So like that's, it it was kind of interesting to see like that reversal of sorts. And it's definitely been an improvement for me. Yeah. And I think, you know, if these are people who genuinely generally get along well, you might be able to kind of take your cues from them. Letter writer, like if you see the way that they kind of let somebody else know, like, all right, you're being a little nosy and I want you to back off. And you can kind of see the way they say that to each other. You can take your cues from that. Mm -hmm. Um, I think you can also like if somebody's asking you questions that you just don't really want to answer, I think it's always fine to say, you know, something along the lines of I I don't really want to go into detail about this. Is that okay? 
because um, it's when it's with people you can trust. That's kind of a way of letting them know it's not that you're being a jerk. Exactly. I just want to keep this private for a minute. And, and I want to know if that's all right. I'm not trying to shut you out. Absolutely. Um, and if somebody's being a little bit messy, you know, kind of the same thing. You can sort of say, hey, I, I don't want to be a, 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 like really aggressive about this, but I've noticed that you always leave out your water cups. And I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind um, kind of trying to pay more attention um, to where your water cups are, like or maybe have one water cup instead of whenever you have a cup. Do you know what I mean? Like, I keep saying water cup. It sounds like it's not a real thing, but like, I have to remind myself to just use one throughout the day. Otherwise, whenever I want a cup of water, I'm like, I'll just go to the cupboard and get a brand new cup and drink out of it once and then put it in the dishwasher and then do the same thing in 20 minutes. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's it's like a very small thing you could kind of like keep your eye on. And and it's something that they couldn't understand. I think it's not like a major problem. They can look at it themselves and um, and in this case, I'm speaking to the person uh, that wrote the letter speaking to their family or whatever. But like, you know, like take baby steps with it. I think that would be smart in this situation. Um, yeah, like like that, like you said. Yeah. And I think, too, it may also just take you a little time to work your way up to that. Like you say, they see you as one of their own. It, it may sometimes internally be a little hard to remind yourself that you are safe and that they do see you as one of their own and that's not going to be taken away from you if you do something wrong. So you might sometimes have to like spend a day or two thinking like, OK, I'm going to talk to like Jim tomorrow about this and here's what I'm going to say and maybe I'll write it down first because I'm a little anxious. Um, like give yourself a little time to prepare for it if you need to. That's fine. Um, and, and I think also just to ask it in terms of questions, like, is that okay? Is it all right if I do this to kind of let the other person know you're sort of not sure. And, and frankly, again, like, because they sound like wonderful people, you can even say, I don't really know how to talk about this because I've never been in a situation like this before. Um, so I'll appreciate your guidance as you kind of tell me how to like deal with low level issues like this. Um. And again, because they are people you can trust, I think they'll handle that well. Yeah, and I think that honesty in this situation is probably absolutely the best route. And considering that they are like way more understanding than the previous people you lived with, I think that they would definitely be more willing to listen to you mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. And and my first the last thing which is about telling stories for the nth time my first response was like oh you know I have some family members who do that and I actually over the years have grown to find it kind of sweet and endearing and then I remembered I haven't lived with any of my family members in like at least six years um, and that that's really different. So actually, um, I, I do not want to just say like, ah, cherish it because who knows when they'll be gone. Um, it is definitely fine to like, again, gently say like, oh, yes, actually, you have told me that story and then say a sentence that makes it clear that you're really familiar with it. Not in a way that's like, you idiot, you should have remembered that's designed to cut them down, but in a way that just lets them know, yes, I have the information you need for me. Um, so that they yeah, can like either be gentle. Yeah. Yeah. And then th that way they can either say like, oh, gosh, I forgot I told you or they can say, oh, right. So if you already know the story, I can keep going w to finish whatever my point was. Yeah. Um, and, and I guess mostly I just want to say don't put too much pressure on yourself to love all their little quirks because you feel like I should just feel grateful all the time. Like if there's times when you just want to go take a walk um, or be in your room for a little while or say – I really want to talk about the mess. Like, I'm really glad you're giving yourself permission to talk about this because I, I would worry that you would maybe feel like it's just my job to be grateful forever. Mm -hmm. All right. Would you read the uh, second letter? 
Dear Prudence, I recently moved back to my home state to attend graduate school. The decision was influenced by many factors. I missed my hometown. I wanted to help out my parents, who are both approaching 70 and have more responsibilities than they can handle, and I needed to attend a school where I could afford in-state tuition. I spent almost two years planning the transition. However, I also started a new relationship with someone I've become deeply attached to. He reluctantly agreed he would try to make long-distance work on the condition that I visit every month, but I'm struggling to afford tuition. I'm in a medical professional program that isn't funded. Payments on my undergraduate student loans, not all of them could be deferred, and living expenses in addition to a round-trip ticket every month. I adore him, and he says he adores me. But understandably, I don't think he wants a partner who only sees every few months. We both see our relationship as a long-term commitment, but I don't know how to get us to my graduation date intact. So, you know, I want to start by saying I cannot promise or guarantee that any uh, readers or listeners uh, can keep a long-distance relationship if they write into me. Um, You might do everything right, and it still won't work out. I want to just state, first of all, that um, having been a person who's been in a long distance relationship and actually made it work, that it was almost completely by luck that it happened. Like, we started our relationship in 2012, um, the first part of that year, and it wasn't until 2014 until we actually even saw each other. And a lot of these little minuscule roadblocks felt like the end of the world, and it's totally normal to feel like it's not working or that it's kind of not turning out how you wanted it to. Um, If you truly care about this person, I would suggest pushing forward, but it's also, you're also in a very difficult position where, you know, it's, it's hard to actually get to a point of actually staying with this person forever. And sometimes it doesn't work out like you said, but um, you have to have like consistent, like, a consistent relationship and boundaries and talking with the other person on the side of the fence too and you and having them understand like where you're coming from specifically and it's it's very difficult to try and like get that to work but if you do stay in contact and do like truly appreciate one another and everything then i think more often than not like it can work out like if if he does truly care about you then i think that he would kind of try to get on your level and try to understand that your graduate position is very important to you as well. And the finances sometimes are just very difficult to work around. And I would hope that you would try to like both kind of work through that in a way that is beneficial to both of you. Like it's, it's not going to be easy, but I mean, that's what I would say in that situation. I am glad, by the way, that I just happen to have chosen letters that sort of line up with things you've actually been through. Yeah. Um, like, that's that's just useful. Mm-hmm. Um, I am not in a long-term relationship or, or long-term. I am in a long-term relationship. I'm not in a long-distance relationship. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure, yeah, it's been a little while since I was in a long-distance relationship for, like, a significant chunk of time, like two years. Mm-hmm. Um, so my advice will be slightly more just, like, this is a guess. Um, but it sounds like you have fabulous reasons for wanting to go home. Um, that part seems really, really clear. Um, I don't know how far across the country um, your current boyfriend is, letter writer. But, um, you know, a round trip ticket every month simply might not be financially avoidable or affordable, rather. So it, it, it may kind of just come down to 
maybe you guys can make it work. Maybe you'll say, hey, here's how much I can actually afford to fly home. And it's going to be closer to like four times a year than 12 times a year. Um, and, you know, if if his response to that is kind of like, well, you've effectively ended this relationship. I'm out. Then that, I think, just kind of says something about his level of investment. Um, but if 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 he's available to talking about, would he be interested in flying back sometimes? Does he want to do the kind of thing where you guys break up, but you stay in touch? And then two years from now, if you both happen to be unattached, you want to revisit, which you really can't guarantee. But sometimes people do it. Sometimes it works out. Um, I, I think you're just going to have to kind of go ahead with this and then like – if if he's willing to meet you in the middle, there's a lot you two can work through. But if he's kind of like, eh, you seem really interested in like helping out your family and like focusing on grad school. And I don't really care if you're not right in front of me because I kind of lack object permanence. Um, then that's going to let you know, maybe don't spend too much money on tickets ahead of time. Yeah. Um, so like I get that he doesn't want a partner he can only see every few months. But then the question would be, does that mean he wants to work really hard to see you a lot? Or does that mean he's willing to consider this relationship as having run its course? And it's 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 really hard with long distance relationships to like not have the physical element of it. That can be really incredibly lonely, even with the person like scoping with you or face chatting with you or whatever. And it's just it's that's not an easy thing to deal with but i would suggest like if if you do truly care about this person or whatever and you really want to make it work and it sounds like you do the the writer, the letter writer does then i would attempt to try and make time for this person even if it is through skype watching a movie over skype together or spending a particular amount of time talking with each other or even like like sending each other sexy videos or something like just something to remind them that the physical element of this is still here while also like kind of making it easier along the way for them between periods where they would actually meet each other physically. Yeah. And I just, you know, letter writer, you've been planning this move for two years and you want to help out your parents and you're going to be going to school. It sounds like close to full time. So the amount of time you will also be able to dedicate to this relationship is limited. Um, and again, I don't say that meaning like you guys are doomed. It's 100% going to happen. I just mean like if he's not willing to come meet you some of the time, I, I just don't know that you're going to be able to every month afford a ticket to see him in addition to going to school full time, potentially working to help pay for school uh, and also caring for your parents. Like you are one person with at most two arms, like there's just going to be a limit to how much you can do. So, yeah, I, I think you go, you do the best that you can with the responsibilities that are in front of you. If this guy shows up um, and and prioritizes some of the things you're prioritizing, that's amazing. And if not, this is probably the best thing that could happen. Better to find out now rather than go through two years of a long distance relationship and finding at the end that you guys have drifted apart. So uh, in in keeping with that, this is maybe going to be something that will also help the last letter writer. Our next letter um, is about learning to be lonely. That's the subject line. And um, yeah, it's uh, here we go. Dear Prudence, I'm a 25-year-old woman and I find it impossible to stay single. I've been in relationships since I was about 13 with no real breaks in between. I've spoken to therapists about my codependency and self-esteem issues. And I logically understand that being alone won't be so bad once I get used to it. 
but I just can't seem to figure it out. I just ended my most recent relationship last night, and this time I really seriously want to be single, but I'm scared about falling into my own pat- old patterns or of being miserable and lonely until I just give in to any new relationship. Do you have any tips on how I can break this habit and learn to love being a strong, independent lady who doesn't need a man? All right, I, I kind of want to just ask again, like, is this also something you've experienced? Have you also been in relationships uh, all the time? Because it would be great if this just applied to you, too. Wouldn't it be? Not it would be great. Sorry. <laughs> I've, I, it would be kind of hilarious if, like, if I went through all of these questions and my life kind of lined up with them perfectly. Like, what a coincidence that would be. But we break the streak here. Um, I'm not... Uh, I haven't been through anything um, that this person has in my own personal life. I've only had like one serious relationship and it's the one that I've mentioned earlier that was long distance. Um, So I come at this from like from not having like firsthand experience that the writer has in uh, their experiences that they wrote about that you just mentioned. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad letter writer that you've spoken to therapists about this. Um, I'm glad you've identified something that's a pattern you'd like to change. Um, I'm glad you just ended your most recent relationship. And I'm glad you're asking for help committing to sticking to something that you want. Like all of those are good things. And all of those are really hard things uh, to to come to know about yourself. Like it can be really hard to recognize your own patterns. So, you know, I just want to like start by saying I think you're doing a lot of things right here. Um, if you're not seeing a therapist right now, uh, hopefully that would help. Um, one thing that also may help is telling a lot of people uh, in your life what you're hoping to do, to do. Like, tell your friends, tell people that you care about. Like, I just went through a breakup. I haven't been alone since I started dating at 13. I kind of don't know how to be alone, and I'm afraid. And um, that's not to say that they're going to be able to help you do this, but it will just help to know that the people in your life know what's going on with you. Um, If you want, if you think it'd be helpful to say, like, I'd love to just check in with you guys more. I'd love to spend a little time together. I'd love to be able to call you sometimes when I'm feeling anxious and that if I don't start dating the next guy who gives me a call, that I'll be alone forever and I won't know how to handle it. Like, lean on your friends, ask for help, ask for support um, because they may be able, you know, a, a lot of them will probably be able to identify with it at least somewhat. Um, and it will maybe not feel so bad if you've like got a good friend with you who's like, yes, we can cry and talk about our fears and then we can, you know, watch a movie and eat a lot of junk food. Yep. I'm, I'm going to like co-sign a lot of what you said here. Um, the fact that you um, have pinpointed this problem is already a step in the right direction that you can verbalize it in a way that you can think about it and know it's an issue. You'll be able to see it more easily, I think, um, having actually known about it. And I think that what you mentioned, Daniel, about about um, kind of telling your friends about it and about your hopes and fears and um, the significance of this issue that you've had over the course of your own life and, and not be, not knowing how to be alone and things of that sort, I think it's good for them to know because then they can kind of pinpoint a pattern and kind of notice when you're kind of like maybe – you know, going over towards this side of you that you kind of didn't want to be in a relationship at the time. Like they can help, they can help like visualize it for you as well, knowing like what is going to happen in your own life. They can kind of like be your lifeguards or whatever. 
And you should kind of like, and I do think that talking to a therapist would be good in this situation, but I also think that the situation with friends and kind of like latching onto them is like absolutely the way to go here, like you mentioned. Yeah. And and I think a couple other things that may prove helpful um, is just writing down uh, like it, it, and this doesn't have to be like a real, real long journal entry, but just write down a little bit about like an ideal relationship for you, which is not to say like what's, you know, he's going to be like such and such a person and do such and such things. But like um, in an ideal relationship, you know, what would it feel like when you guys were getting together? I, I imagine you would you would say something like um, we'd be getting together because we both cared about one another a lot, felt relatively secure, felt excited about, you know, kind of combining our lives rather than I panicked and I picked the first guy who called me. So just getting a sense not of like, what's this guy going to do? But like, what am I going to feel like? Um, how will I feel safe and secure? Um, uh, you know, will I feel like this guy is an addition to a life that I already enjoy? Or will I feel like this guy is my life? You know, um, and, and, and writing some of that down may just be helpful in terms of like reality testing. Like if you're, you know, alone and at night none of your friends are picking up and you're like, well, the, I know there's this guy who, who likes me that if I called him and said I'm, I'm ready to start dating, he'd, he'd jump at it. You can kind of check against that list and say like, again, not, not for the purpose of browbeating yourself into like a period of celibacy until you've decided that you've like achieved a certain ideal amount of independence. Um, but just to kind of check and see like, is this what I want or is this a fear? Um, and, and I think also just finding kind ways to speak to that fear when it pops up, when that part of you is like, oh God, you're afraid and alone. And this feeling is just going to keep building and building to just sort of address that fear in yourself and be like, yeah, I'm afraid right now. I'm afraid I'm going to be alone. Um, I'm afraid that this is never going to get better. I'm afraid that I'm always going to feel this bad. Uh, and I just want to like speak tenderly to that fear right now. Cause that's big. I, I think, especially with this pattern that you've noticed in yourself, you know, because the fear and the anxiety and the the loneliness build until you find it unbearable and then you grab a boyfriend, in your mind it's like, oh, that feeling just gets exponentially bigger until I throw a boyfriend at it. So if I, you know, if I felt that way for two weeks of singleness, imagine how bad I'd feel at four weeks. But like there's a limit to how bad a bad feeling can get. So because you've always stopped it at that big high point, there's a part of you that's like, it would just keep going. But actually, I, I think you will find um, if you sit and you kind of acknowledge that feelings, even the huge intense ones that feel like they're going to just rack us from, you know, top to bottom, um, they do fade, you know, even if it's only like, oh, now I feel a little like worn out from crying and sleepy. Like that's... Um, it, it doesn't just get worse and worse until it kills you. Like for me, sometimes every time I have a feeling, I'm, I'm just convinced like this is going to be the feeling that kills me. I'm going to feel this way every day for the rest of my life. Uh, I'm going to feel this bad and it's just going to get worse and worse by the hour every hour and it's never going to stop. Um, and that's not to diminish how important or big feelings can be. But so far, none of the feelings that I thought would kill me have killed me. Um, and they do always, even just for a little bit, even just when I'm asleep, abate a little. Again, I'm not trying to talk about like something like clinical depression or like a, a genuine like mental illness that needs to be treated. I'm talking about just just the garden variety human emotions like loneliness, fear, panic, pain. Um, 
And so kind of figuring out what are other things I can do with those feelings in that moment. And if you're at a point where it just feels like I got to call this guy, I got to call this guy or I'm going to explode, set a timer for five minutes and just write down how you feel. And that's that's maybe going to feel a little goofy. It's maybe going to feel a little childish. But, you know, when the timer goes off, after you've written it down, take a look at what you've written. It may be that you no longer feel an absolute pressing need to call that guy. You certainly can if you want to. Um, nothing, nothing awful is going to happen, but it, it, you may find that that like compulsive need passes um, if you kind of give yourself a minute to just look at that feeling. But you know, you're going to feel some loneliness. You're going to feel some fear. You're going to have to go through it. Um, and it's hard. It's hard work. And and I wish you all the best in it. And I hope that you write back and let us know how you're doing, um, because this is the sort of work that I think will um, just just have really good um, returns on investment throughout your life if you spend some time with them right now. Right. And, and I just want to add one more thing just to co-sign yeah. one of your points. Um, I do think that writing down what you're feeling in, in that specific moment can be very helpful. It can be like a small exorcism for you. I find that um, writing helps me kind of like crystallize what I'm feeling and kind of remove it from myself. And I think that that could be useful for the person who wrote this wrote this letter as well. Um, it's the same reason why we kind of like have diaries when we're like little kids or whatever and going through school and everything, like all the stress of the day or whatever, we kind of just unload it on the page. And with writing, I think you can you can kind of actually look at it physically for yourself and kind of see where where you're feeling at the time and kind of pinpoint like if you're actually going over the deep end on these feelings again, if you are like trying to rush into the relationship and into an arms of a man again, I think that you can kind of read and kind of understand where you're coming from from a better place and I think that it would be really good for this person as an outlet to kind of just put their words onto the page exactly basically yeah all right so I think we should move on to our next letter and I believe you get to read this next one yeah um this this letter has the subject of responsibility for an alcoholic mom dear prudence most people have the wrong idea about my mother She's always been a sweet poster mom who is also verbally abusive, especially when she's drinking. She and my father had a pretty bad relationship, and she left when I was 12, telling us kids that it was our fault for not helping around the house more. After that, I raised myself and my autistic brother with little help. She rarely had us over, never paid child support, and avoided my brother as he got older because he wasn't any fun. Today, we have an okay relationship that I can only stand because she lives far away. Her sister called me crying a year ago, saying my mother was in a hospital from alcohol withdrawal because she is an alcoholic. My extended family expected me to be shocked. I wasn't. And are telling me that I should try to get her to stop drinking so that she won't drink herself to death. How much responsibility do I really have here? I'm tempted to wash my hands of it, but I'm starting, suspect, starting to suspect she's getting dementia related to the alcoholism, which worries me. Yeah, my take here is that your responsibility is very, very limited, letter writer. I agree. Even if your mother had been a wonderful, kind, gentle mother, your responsibility towards her would not extend to getting her to stop drinking now. I, I think it's 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 a very heavy issue with this letter, but and you may feel guilted into caring about this more than you actually should, but it's not your responsibility 
that has put her in the position that she's in. And that's kind of like, you may think that's like a selfish thing to hear or a selfish thing that they say or whatever, but it's not, it's not you who is, you don't have to be there to save her is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And, and I think the letter writer does have some awareness of that, but is then kind of worried like, well, if she's getting dementia, then that might complicate things. So, I, I agree that that's complicated. And again, that's one of the reasons why it can be really hard to set limits with a long-term chronic alcoholic because eventually it starts taking a really serious toll on people's health, um, often to an extent where they can no longer care for themselves without endangering themselves. And again, yeah, that's really, really complicated. There there may come a day when you, you guys collectively as a family um, will need to, you know, either make decisions about end-of-life care because she's in the hospital or or need to talk about uh, putting her in a place where she can be looked after 24 hours a day because she is no longer mentally competent. And that's really sad and, and, and painful and fraught. But um, I don't want you to feel like right now your job is to keep your mother from getting dementia. Like, I don't, I don't know everything about dementia or whatever, but like um... – Whatever is going to happen is going to happen, and, like, you have little control over that. Like, that's what I would say in this situation. Um, And I don't – and I would hope that you wouldn't beat yourself up over it or feel guilty for not having responded earlier to her alcoholism or whatever because this has been a very – it sounds like it's been, like, a very long chronic problem for her. And there's probably very little you could have done to have changed the – the course that she was headed towards yeah i mean yeah alcohol uh, induced dementia like symptoms like korsakoff syndrome again are really distressing awful things um but again you know you're not a doctor you're not um your mother's like medical care team your mother has not expressed any interest in getting sober or getting treatment for her alcoholism so in terms of what can you do not a lot. I mean, you can um, – your your mom's been to the hospital. She's been treated for alcohol withdrawal. Um, my guess is they at least offered her the option of receiving more long-term treatment, and she declined it. Um, she has probably heard of rehab, of AA, of similar groups to AA. Um, she's probably seen at least one doctor. Um, it's not like she lives in a world where none of those options are available to her. So I think for you, the real goal needs to be how do you set a limit such that engagement with your mother would be – it would need to be based on her getting help rather than how do I convince her to get help? Um, Like to say to your mother um, or to say to your siblings, if mom ever wants to get help, I'll support that. In the meantime, that's kind of it. I support her getting help. Um, and so you don't have to, like, pretend that your mom's not an alcoholic. You don't have to um, worry about if she gets upset with you. But that's kind of it. Yeah, you can just say, like, Mom, I encourage you to get help. I'm not that help. Like, you're her child. Um, so if the sister calls you crying, you can you don't have to pretend to be shocked. You can say, yep, it is really, really sad. Um, you can encourage your aunt to maybe check out Al-Anon. Um, or or similar support groups for people who who love alcoholics and um, say that that's kind of it. That's all I got. I got to go. 
it would be great if your mom didn't drink herself to death. She has other options. And that, that doesn't mean, like, she just needs to, like, toughen up and deal with it and, like, get sober tomorrow. But I just want to be so, so, so careful because it feels like right now your family is getting close to saying you, the child, as her child, are going to be the thing that stands between her and an alcoholic death. And that's not. She has to want to not drink herself to death. If she if she's if she can get there, there's I think often a lot of help that that you can help her access, but you can't want it for her. Mm-hmm. You can't pick your parents. Um, you sometimes the sometimes they just aren't perfect. Sometimes they treat you poorly. Sometimes um, your your childhood isn't perfect, and it's not it's not your responsibility to atone for their problems. Um, as a child, it's difficult not to feel that way sometimes, but I would, I would try to center yourself in this situation and try to do your best, try to not try to completely overwhelm, overwhelm yourself with this situation, because in order for her to get healthy, that's going to have to be her decision and not something that you can do physically or in whatever you could say, like if she's been an alcoholic for this long, there's, there's, I mean, there's not a lot you could have done in the past or even now to have like reverse course. Yeah. And I just, you, you know, the letter writer says she is verbally abusive, especially when she's drinking and we know she's close to drinking herself to death. So, you know, we can safely extrapolate that she's probably verbally abusive a lot now. Um, she also abandoned the letter writer uh, at the age of 12, said it's your fault because you didn't do more chores and never offered child support like letter writer. I, I imagine there might be ways in which even just like having more than very minimal contact with your mother is really, really painful. So you are not consigning her to dementia and death if you do not pick up the phone when she calls. Um, if you need to look out for yourself and continue to have extremely limited contact with your mother, you can do that. That does not mean that you are harming her in any way. Um, she could reach out for help if she wanted to. Um, if other members of the family try to say it's actually your job to keep her sober, um, what they're doing is trying to offload their anxiety and fear and powerlessness onto you. And that's not actually the situation. That's not actually reality. That's them trying to make you responsible for their fears. And you don't have to take that. You can end that phone call. Um, you can limit those contacts too. Um, and that's not cruel. That's not unloving. That's not abandonment. That's sane, healthy self-protection. Absolutely. All right. So this next letter is a total change of tactic. We're getting into much more... Um, uh, I, I don't want to say soap opera levels because I don't want to diminish the pain the letter writer has been through, but um, it, 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 it definitely bears the hallmarks of a soap opera plot, um, including including the names. We've got Luke with a C, so like a, I'm just picturing a sort of rakish French guy, maybe with an eye patch, um, and Ashley, um, the, the, you know, betraying friend and it's kind of wonderful it's kind of a wonderful change of pace because the letter writer sounds like a really remarkable person and frankly i think luke never deserved you i don't think so either. with all that said yeah with all that said i'm gonna read it it's called i want support not revenge after an epic betrayal dear prudence my former fiance luke left me two weeks before our wedding we'd been together for eight years i'm devastated and because luke says the wedding was quote my idea he proposed although he refused to help plan it and won't split costs with me I'm financially treading water, too. 
I still love him, which is confusing and why I've kept pretty quiet about the breakup. He told friends it was mutual, that I was, quote, as glad as he was to call off the wedding. Now I've discovered he's been dating a coworker, Ashley, for months. The floor keeps falling out from under me. I want to tell people, including our mutual friends, the truth. I don't want to be vindictive, though. Ashley is also Luke's supervisor, which is against company policy. If the company found out, there might be an investigation or even termination. Ruining people's lives won't make me feel better. How can I open up in a way that's about seeking support, not getting revenge? They could let us get revenge, right? Like, you and I could take revenge against this guy, and their hands would be perfectly clean. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that would make a great movie. Like, we were just talking about film at the beginning of the show. I mean, I would watch that. I 100% would watch that. (laughs) But, yeah, I mean, you mentioned, like, beforehand that, like, Luke totally didn't deserve the letter otter, and I completely agree. Um, and I'm 100% in your corner here. Um, I kind of would tell mutual friends the truth just to kind of get this off of your chest. And I mean, whatever happens, happens with, um, Ashley and Luke at their jobs. Um, if the truth gets out over there, but like, I feel like you have to tell somebody, I mean, you're telling us, so you are, um, at least okay with verbalizing what has happened to you. And you are dealing with a lot of pain right here and being like unjustly like hurt by like this guy that you thought you were like really, really into and you thought he was like very, very into you, but he kind of sounds like, like a sleaze bag. And, you know, I mean, your friends should like prop you up in this situation. I think that that would be absolutely the first thing to do is to just tell your friends how you feel. Yeah. And I can certainly imagine, like I I could see a situation where you tell your friends and they kind of say like, yeah, 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 I get that you don't want revenge, but like, don't worry, I'll do it for you. And then like, do maybe try to make life harder for him um, in a way that you don't want. So it's certainly fine to like really stress to your friends. I don't want you to like report him. I don't want anyone at work to hear about it from my gang. But you also just I, I don't think you can make yourself responsible for making sure he never gets investigated for something he's doing against company policy. Like, Either he and Ashley will be really good at hiding it and they will get away with it or they will slip up at work. And that's just not going to be something you can worry about. It's not your fault. It's not your problem. Also, if he proposed to you and he called it off, you know, you might want to consult with a lawyer. But generally speaking, in most states, it's understood that the engagement ring, if he did give you one, is yours. He's not entitled to it back. Um, If you're having trouble making payments on the wedding that you had absolutely every reason to think that you would both be participating in, um, you can sell the damn ring and use the money to pay for some of those uh, costs. Um, You know, again, check with a lawyer. But generally speaking, the ring's yours to do with as you like. And That might be a a nice end to a ring that once um, made you think of promises you thought would be kept um, and can now at least be sort of financially useful to you. Absolutely. I completely agree with everything you just said. And hopefully, like, to whatever extent, if any of it's deposits on stuff, man, oh, man, please tell your friends so that they can help you get some of your money back. Like, I don't want you to go through this alone right now. And if you say to your friends, like, one of the things that's really hard for me right now is trying to get back as much money as I can because I'm I'm on the hook for all this stuff. Like, it, it, to whatever extent your friends can help you, like, contact, like, florists and cake makers and dressmakers on your behalf and say, like, 
listen, my friend was just devastated because her fiance is cheating on her with a coworker, or a supervisor. Hopefully a lot of those places are going to say, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. Here is your money back. Yeah. And some definitely will. I'm like, I find it very you probably won't get 100% of your money back. I think that's like an impossibility. But like, it definitely can't hurt to try. And some people will be empathetic with what happened to you. Yeah, yeah. You know, again, I don't want to make promises that everybody's going to be able to give you all your money back. But it's definitely worth trying. And again, if the idea of doing that when you're also grieving the end of an eight-year relationship feels overwhelming, it's going to feel really good to have friends helping, you know? Definitely. Yeah, so, you know, Consult a lawyer, find out how much you can get for the ring, use that to pay as much of the debts as you can, try to see if there's any money you can give back, focus on getting support from your friends, you know, telling the truth about what happened to you does not, it's not the same thing as calling up, you know, his workplace and saying, by the way, you really need to investigate Luke and Ashley, like, that's not bitter, that's not trying to hurt him, that's just telling your friends what happened to you so that they can be there for you. Absolutely. And yeah, I I get that you don't want to hurt him, but you're also doing a lot to protect him right now. And it doesn't sound like he did much to protect you. And I want better for you. Yeah, he doesn't deserve that protection. He really doesn't. All right. We've got another ruining the holidays question, which I really need to put a cap on. I think after today, we need to be done with those because there's only so many times I can remind people that you cannot ruin the holidays. Um, It's just a day. But would you read this letter? Absolutely. Um, Dear Prudence. I'm a 36-year-old woman who's been single for the past 10 years, which has made any decisions about where to go for the holidays pretty easy. I go where my family goes. However, I am now dating someone I see a real future with, and he has invited me to spend some time with his family on Christmas Day. When I told my mother and sister, they freaked out, demanding that I decline the invitation as I was only allowed to spend the day with family. It's important for me and my partner that I spend some portion of Christmas Day with his family, especially considering he will be spending time with mine. My family is incredibly hurt by my decision, and I've been made to feel like I'm going to ruin Christmas if I pop out for three to four hours on that day, when we would most likely be watching movies anyway. How do I tell them that I'm going and that in doing so, I will not ruin Christmas? Well, the good news is (laughs) you won't ruin Christmas. Nope. I don't know if you have noticed this. I feel like I've noticed something about who says you're ruining Christmas and who they say it to. Because in my experience with this column, it is a phrase that tends to get used against women. And it tends to get used against women who want to spend a little time by themselves Um, or not take responsibility for hosting multiple generations and carrying on a tradition that another woman, usually their mom, um, you know, shouldered for years and years and years. And I find it suspicious uh, as a result. Have you also noticed this in in your life, in your experience with people making claims of holiday ruination? Yes, I have. Um, And especially like in the last few years, where um, Trevor and I have both just kind of been busy with work and haven't been able to go home at Christmas at all, or the weather's just been absolutely horrible. And um, at first, it was, like, kind of a, a difficult thing for them to grasp, where, I like, like we had our own um, individual individuality in Christmas that we wanted to spend with ourselves and how that time was special for us. They eventually came to the understanding that um, 
that Christmas was like a special time for us too. And um, it was generally coming from my, um, uh, oh, I should say that like Trevor is like my fiance. And, um, uh, and yeah, like his, his mom would be like, well, you need to come home for Christmas because it's Christmas, you know? And I can, I can empathize with that, but I do think that um, in time that they will more easily understand that you kind of have to chart your own path with Christmas, especially if you're in a relationship that's like important or whatever. And in, in my experience, like um, the person that I'm in a relationship, his mother kind of understood that, that this wasn't, that this was a special day for us too. And is has become more relaxed with it at Tom in Tom. And I th- I think that that could happen here in this situation too. It's just difficult to actually get past the first hurdle of asserting your own um, individuality on Christmas. It's by saying that um, you need to spend it with these people for a little bit longer because it's important to you specifically instead of being like a collective family thing, like, you know, centering yourself on Christmas and kind of saying that like, Hey, this relationship is important to me and I'm trying to create my own family. I think that that's an important thing to understand. Yeah. And I just think like there are times when family members can offer critique or say, this hurts me or say, I wish you'd reconsider this. And it's important to actually reconsider it or to think about what they're saying or to take it seriously. Um, this is just not one of them. Again, that's not to say you should say, like, fuck off, mom and sister. I'm doing whatever I feel like. Um, but to understand that, like, you really don't need to try to, like, sit down and say, like, now because I'm 36 and for the last 36 years, I've spent all of Christmas with you every day and it's only a couple of hours. Like, what you're asking for is very small, limited, and reasonable. But they're not objecting to it because you guys like have a difference of opinion about what constitutes reasonable and you two can like like I just I want to relieve you of the delusion that if you could only sit down and explain to them what you're asking that they will eventually concede the point and say "Ah, all right you're not ruining Christmas we take it back Um, that's not what they're doing what they're trying to say is it is your job to stay uh, the kind of way that we think of you, especially on Christmas, which is like you don't have anything conflicting going on. You don't have any priorities higher than us. We kind of get to keep you frozen in amber on this day. Um, and if you do anything else, you are hurting us. And you're just not like so I think the thing to do there, if they say things like you're ruining Christmas, just go a little blank, like do them the favor of pretending you didn't hear that. Just be like. No, I'm just popping out for three hours. You must be thinking of something else. Um, like, don't don't provoke them needlessly if if they're real hostile about jokes. But but go ahead and just be a little cheerful, uh, a little like hard of hearing, and just like just just don't don't worry about calming down their freaking out because you're really not doing anything to hurt them. Just go with. Yeah, I'm gonna spend part of the afternoon with like. Jim and his family. And if they just totally lose it, then you can just go ahead and say, like, guys, it seems like you're going through a lot right now. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and spend the evening with them. I love you. I hope that you're able to eventually see that this is not hurting you. Um, yeah. And I think that after you get past this first Christmas, where if, if this is a serious relationship that you have with this person and you're with this other person, the person you're in a relationship with for Christmases to come, then um, the first Christmas is always going to be like the most difficult one. But like once that they realize that 
hey, our Christmas can survive without everyone being attached at the hip the entire time through it, time and time through it, then they'll understand more easily next time around that you kind of need a few hours to kind of go do your thing because you are part of this other family now potentially. And it, it, it will get easier is what I would say. This first one is going to be frustrating but and it has been frustrating for this letter writer but um you're not going to run christmas you're not going to destroy the holidays for them it's just something that they're going to have to understand and and i just want to throw out there like even if it weren't some guy that you found who's amazing that you might want to spend the rest of your life with if it was literally just like i don't want to go see a movie this year i want to spend a couple hours this afternoon like taking a walk by myself that would be fine too and it wouldn't ruin a damn thing it's not like mandatory sit in the same living room day it's anyways uh, i could go on about this for a long time i won't i will instead read our next letter which is my wife can't forgive my teen mistakes dear prudence my wife and i met when we were both 18 and have been together for more than 25 years when we first met i was struggling to care for my family members my stepmom died and there was a huge custody battle over my younger siblings and i apparently set a lot of rules about living close to my family and taking care of them and other things i say apparently because i honestly don't remember making ultimatums now two decades later with kids of our own my wife is furious with me she says she gave up many opportunities because i refused to do anything that didn't focus on my family and their needs we've been in therapy but it doesn't do any good she says our whole life together was a mistake I love her and I wish she didn't feel this way, but I can't take back the things I said when I was a teenager. Do we have to split up because I was a stupid kid? I don't know if you had the same reaction to reading this letter, but I I definitely, you know, I I feel both for the letter writer and the wife in question. Um, You know, getting together at 18 is already like that's tricky. Um, And you were a kid yourself trying to take care of other kids. So I, I absolutely feel like i'm sure you were super overwhelmed you were doing kind of the best you could you probably um like overcorrected too hard on the side of like rigidity and we have to do things this way um and i can also understand why you know now that the crisis has passed now that the kids are all raised your wife has kind of allowed herself to say i actually feel really frustrated i feel like your family crisis took precedence over everything else Um, And I feel like I didn't get to have an equal say in the kind of life we built together. And that makes sense to me, too. Um, With that said, you know, you say you don't really remember phrasing things in terms of an ultimatum. Okay, you know, I, I would I would certainly encourage you to, like, spend some time really racking your brain, like try as hard as you can to remember if you really can't get there. I I would say ask your wife. Like, don't don't kind of just go with like, well, I guess she feels that way. Nothing to be done. Like approach her in the spirit of like, I have not reconsidered my actions when I was 18 in a really long time. And I'm a little embarrassed and chagrined to admit this, but um, I don't remember a lot about this. And it's clear that you do. And that worries me because I, I, I worry that I said things Um, in a spirit of rigidity and panic and needing to control things. And then because I got my way, I just sort of stopped thinking about them. Um, And yet they lingered with you because you felt like you weren't able to say anything at the time. And so I want to know more about what that was like. Can you tell me a little bit about what you remember me saying? Um, Can you tell me what you remember my response being if you tried to, you know, offer objections or suggest other alternatives? Can you tell me more about what it felt like? And really, you know, 
listen, pay attention, be prepared to hear painful things. Um, and and kind of as she says those things, uh, even if it feels painful or embarrassing to consider that you might have behaved that way, um, you know, really sit and absorb them and, and listen and give her a chance to have her say. Um, does that seem, does that make sense? Do you feel like that's a, an option that that would be useful to them? Yeah. Um, when I read this letter, I empathized with both of them. Because um, the situation that the letter writer was put in is obviously very difficult. And especially at 18, like I can't imagine having to like look after a bunch of siblings um, permanently going forward. And that probably put a lot of stress on her. It put a lot of stress on him. And it was probably not exactly the way that they wanted to, you know, live their life as they were like becoming more romantic with each other and getting married and going forward and all that. But um I agree with what you said in um, having him talk talk to her honestly and openly about these things, about how he's feeling, because she's honestly carrying around, she's obviously carrying around a lot of baggage and a lot of pent-up feelings about this, and I think it would be better to actually get all of this out in the open and actually discuss it. I don't think, I don't think things in this letter are so broken that they can't be together. But I think that they have to have a lot of honest conversations going forward about the past and how they maybe didn't treat each other as well as they could have back then and giving each other the time that they needed because he was so preoccupied with, you know, raising the siblings and taking care of family instead of maybe taking care of her. And that's maybe something that she needs to hear too. And I think that they honestly just need to absolutely like, talk with each other about this and if if things are really bad then you can at least say that you gave it your all at the end in trying to actually mend fences and listen to her honestly and listen to yourself honestly and try to like figure out how to fix this roadblock that popped up in their relationship earlier that earlier that's still affecting their relationship to this day yeah and you know I, I can't promise you that if you guys have a like long, serious, honest uh, grappling with the past conversation right now that at the end of it, you're not going to have to split up. It, it, it may be the kind of thing that the best outcome is that you two just have a couple of really honest conversations about the past. You're able to acknowledge even if the things she says don't ring a bell for you to just say like, you know, I, I, I believe you when you bring this up. I'm so sorry that I did not like you know, that this stuff felt so, I was so distracted and obsessed about other things in my life that I just had these conversations with you and then forgot about them. I hear you now. I'm sorry. I understand where you're coming from. And if if this is how things end between us, um, I, I, I'm at least, you know, grateful that we got a chance to talk about it. And I hope that whatever the next phase of your life looks like, you, you get to be heard. Um, it may just be that you two can split on slightly more honest terms where you both understand one another a little bit better. Um, but I think mainly the goal here for you needs to not be, how do I convince this my wife to let it go because I was a teenager? Um, I, I don't think that's going to be the right impulse. Again, that doesn't mean that you have to say, yes, I'm a monster. Um, I did this stuff on purpose because I was a jerk. Like You can absolutely extend some compassion back to yourself as an 18-year-old who is panicked and trying to keep his family together. Um, but you can also acknowledge that that took a toll on your wife and what may be best for her now um, 
is not trying to salvage this marriage. So so don't go into it with either the goal of convincing her to forgive you or trying to justify things you don't even remember um, or, or trying to sort of like let yourself off the hook. Like it, I think just go in trying to understand your wife more. Um, you know, take her seriously. You say you don't say that like you have any reason not to trust her. I think you should take her at her word when she kind of says like, I, I bottled this one up for 20 years because we were always kind of in crisis mode. And now that there's not kids in the picture that we have to take care of, it's time for me to acknowledge things that hurt me. Um, you can do that. That's going to be good. And and if there's a way for you two to work through it, that would be great. But if she says that your whole life together was a mistake, then it would be good for you guys to split up. It, it's not good for you to be with somebody who thinks that this is a mistake. Like, I don't want that for you and I don't want that for her. Um, yeah. But that's hard and I wish you both the best and I hope you continue to see a therapist even if it doesn't mean you stay together um, just because this is big, difficult, painful stuff. Yeah, I agree completely. Well, Willow, uh, thank you so much uh, for coming on the show today uh, and helping uh, a bunch of different people with, uh, frankly, a lot of your own life experience. Thank you so much for bringing that to bear. Yeah, um, some of it just kind of reflected back, and which I hope is helpful to these people in some way. Um, my life's not perfect or anything, but like things are relatively decent for me, and um, I hope that the same ha- same happens with these people who've written letters. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you again so much for coming on the show. Uh, thank you for having uh, me. Before you go, are there any movies that you recommend that any of our letter writers read or just anybody read? You can't read a movie. You watch them. They're yeah. on a screen. I was going to say, um, this is a new way to indulge in cinema. Um. I was about to say, it's probably because the movie I saw yesterday had subtitles. And then I was like, it definitely <laughs> didn't have subtitles. It was just old timey. I'm not feeling great about myself. <laughs> um, Please continue. Yeah, there's there's some there's some interesting films out right now. Um, if it's playing um, in your neck of the woods, I would definitely recommend going out and watching the animated film Liz and the Bluebird. Uh, directed by Naka Yamada. It's out of Japan and it's about um, these two teenage girls who are about to go off to college and are uh, horrified at the idea of being separated from each other. They're these two best friends who have just kind of have a codependent relationship with one another. One of them may have a crush on on one of them, which uh, I'm not going to divulge any further. You'll have to figure that out if you watch for yourself. But the movie, um, if you liked Carol, you will like Liz and the Bluebird. Okay. Okay. That's a pretty exciting recommendation. Willow, thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Thank you for having me. All right. Uh, before I sign off, listeners, I have a letter response to an episode from a couple of weeks ago that I want to read, which was about the white babysitter who was interested in babysitting, um, particularly for families with Asian children, and wanted to know whether or not there was anything more that they should be doing to sort of interrogate that own impulse in themselves before taking action. I believe that there was some more interrogation that should go on there. Um, And I've got uh, a response from someone who has a a similar question. Dear Prudence, I was listening to your podcast today about the woman who only wants to babysit for Asian families. For what it's worth, I agreed with your assessment. However, it reminded me of a concern I have about a dream of mine. I love kids. In my work, I'm with kids of all ages and all races. So I'm around a lot of different types of people. I've always wanted to adopt a black baby. I'm Jewish and white. This isn't some white savior thing. 
My heart has just always loved black children a little more, felt more connected with them. And when I see myself with a child, I've always seen myself with a black or African-American child. Does this sound like I'm seeing them as a novelty? I don't think I am, but I've always been a little ashamed of this because I fear people will think I'm racist. So, am I? I'm going to start my answer just by saying I, I promise I will never on this show offer someone a ruling about whether or not they're racist, um, especially because I think what the underlying question often is, is please give me like a I am not racist card that I could show other people who might say that something I have said or done is racist. That, that card doesn't exist. It's not real. If there were such a card, I certainly would not be qualified to give it to you. Um, so Instead, letter writer, um, I will ask you a couple of questions that I encourage you to ask yourself um, without saying you are a horrible racist person who should be, you know, sent away to no baby island. Um, You say that you've always pictured yourself with a black baby. Do you ever picture yourself with a black adult? Because babies get older. They become toddlers and children and then teenagers and then young adults and then adults and then old people. Um, You say nothing about imagining how you would parent a black child who is approaching adulthood. Um, So maybe ask yourself the question, why is it always a baby? Why is this fantasy of blackness that I enjoy so much in my own head, um, why does it require permanent infantilization? Um, uh, some interesting stuff might come up there. You might initially feel resistant. You might say, no, 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 I'm just thinking that because everybody starts out a baby. Obviously, I know that baby will grow up. Um, But, you know, I think it is meaningful that you keep picturing the baby. Um, And so maybe also ask yourself, um, how could I be a good parent to this child? Uh, you, You seem to be real focused on what you would get out of it. Um, that you love black children, quote, a little more, feel more connected to them. Um, That's you, you know, that's your feelings, which I get. Like every parent, you know, there is something fundamentally a little selfish about having a child, and it does have something to do with, I think I'd be happier. Um, But, you know, what do you think the child would get out of that situation? How do you think you could parent well a black child? What other black people are in your life? Um, how would you be able to raise that child in such a way where they weren't the only black person they knew? Um, how would they develop, you know, black self-love um, in your home, in your community, in your family? And if the answer is sort of, I guess I'd get some books or I don't know or, well, I have a colleague at work who's black and I guess I could invite them over for dinner more um, – That might be a clue that this has more to do with the white savior fantasy you would like to disavow, Um, you know, because it I think there's a reason that you brought that up. You say this isn't some white savior thing, but you don't really say why not. You just say, I'd really like to do this. That that doesn't mean it's not a white savior thing. That just means you really want to do it. Um, So, you know, I, I, I think... There's a reason that you worry people might think that this is a little racist. And and it's not just that, like, oh, you shouldn't do it because some people might be a little weird to you at dinner parties. You know, you should think about these things because it directly calls into question what kind of parent you could be 
to a baby and then a toddler and then a child and then a teenager and then an adult who is black. Um, blackness will inform that person's life. Um, and, and if it's no longer a sort of like cute baby adjacent commodity and it becomes something more complicated and something that requires uh, a bigger answer than just like, you're so cute, um, I, I worry that you would find yourself bumping up pretty quickly against certain fantasies that you have not prepared um, for uh, what happens after the fantasy is done. Um, so sit with some of that for a little while. Ask yourself some of those questions. Um, consider gently what kind of harms, um, what kind of pain you might bring to a child um, if you simply sought out to have something that you thought was cute but had not prepared to deal with, you know, life, culture, racism, America. Um, those are, I think, the bigger questions to consider than just, I'd really like to, but I worry somebody might think I was racist someday. Um, so spend some time with that. Feel free to write back. Let us know what you think some of the answers to those questions are. I would love to hear from you again. Um, I would encourage you maybe also to seek out writing by... Um, adult black people who have been adopted by white people um, to see, uh, you know, what were some of the things that they might have felt about it. Again, not to not to like randomly buttonhole somebody and say, I demand you tell me your life story so that I can feel good about a decision I might want to make at some point in the future. Um, but uh, to read books, to read firsthand accounts, um, to find out a little bit about what was it like for them. Um, and to do a little more extrapolating, a little imagining. Um, I know, for example, that Rebecca Carroll um, just sold a project called Surviving the White Gaze, which was about being adopted by white parents and being raised in rural New Hampshire. It's coming out in 2020. Um, that might be a book that would be worth pre-ordering. Um, there are likely others that you could probably find um, if you were to spend a little time doing some research, and I encourage you to do so. And good luck. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Production assistance is by Taylor Simmons. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327. And you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location. And at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short. 30 seconds. A minute tops. Thanks for listening.